Hello, I'm Rena Grobe. And I'm Madvi Romani. And this is Misinformed, a show where we'll be talking about our latest internet obsessions. So Rena, what did you get obsessed with this week? So last Sunday, March 7th, 2021, Switzerland had, they call it a Volksinitiative. It's when the entire country votes on an initiative that is put forward by a citizen. In order to put forward an initiative, you have to gather 100,000 signatures, and then this direct democracy takes place and all of Switzerland votes. This time they had three topics that were up for voting, and the very, very first one is called in German... Ja zum Verhüllungsverbot. So translated, that means yes to the cover-up law. One thing that is very interesting about the way that this works is, is that as a Swiss citizen who is able to vote, you're sent a little booklet. I'm sure that if you live in the country, you don't. You can also get a little booklet, but the information is passed on a little bit differently. But I received a little booklet that on the back says how the Bundesrat and the Parlament suggest I vote. And they suggested that we vote no. The initiative passed, I believe, with like 49 to 51%. So the initiative was called Ja zum Verhüllungsverbot, which, as I mentioned before, means yes to the cover-up law. Unofficially, this law has been referred to as the Burka ban. It was put forward by the SVP, which is the sort of right-wing conservative party in Switzerland, who have been known to run some very offensive, racist, sexist campaigns. Specifically with this campaign, they claimed that the burqa is a sign of oppression towards women. Interestingly enough, the parliament and the executive council are urging you to vote no, not because they give a shit about women, but because they think that this will be bad for tourism. So it's nice to see that everyone in Switzerland has their priorities in order. I've just been thinking about this this week. Yeah, so Switzerland joins Denmark, France, Austria, Latvia, Bulgaria, the Netherlands in this burqa ban. So there are 16 nations that burn the burqa. In contrast, the veil is only actually imposed on women in four countries, and those countries are Saudi Arabia, Iran, Sudan, and the Akhir province of Indonesia. So it's quite funny that people are dictating what clothes people should be wearing. More in the West, and what's kind of seen as this very democratic, wear-what-you-want culture, but we're kind of legislating on what women should wear more than the other way around, basically, which goes a bit to the myth of the West and things we were talking about before. But this actually got me thinking about the myth of Switzerland, because it's very funny that, well, when I think of Switzerland, I think of cheese, cuckoo clocks, cows, men in lederhosen in the Alps, chocolate, watches, banks, security, quality, and then big concepts like neutrality, democracy. And it's all kind of very benign or quaint and cute. Even the accent is really cute. Obviously, this vote, I don't think it's very democratic or liberal to be voting against a minority, minority, minority population and stigmatizing Muslims and separating Muslims in the country. It's an anti-Muslim thing. It makes me incredibly mad that people are using feminism to disguise their Islamophobia. Also, if you 
truly believe that these women are oppressed or that they're being forced, how is further oppressing them and further pushing them into a corner really helping their case? Yeah, so it's not about that. I was also I was going to come on to like feminism and democracy because Switzerland was one of the last countries in Europe to give women the vote. In an article in 2018, The Economist placed Switzerland 21 out of 21 European nations for gender equality. And I think this is mostly because the Swiss did stay out of the war and therefore when the war happened in all these other countries, women went into the workforce and all that, and that didn't actually happen in Switzerland. So women's rights in Switzerland are kind of already way behind. And if you look at pay, equality, everything in the Swiss setup, it's very hard for women. So if they're really concerned about women's oppression, why don't we look at the massive things affecting Switzerland? And then the other thing, of course, is neutrality, which is another wonderful big idea. But this is not a neutral position at all. It's completely anti-Islam, anti-immigration, anti-women, everything stance. So that's out as well. Yeah. On average, women in Switzerland earn 20% than their male counterparts. And up until 1988, you were essentially your husband's property in Switzerland. This is the reason my mother got a Swiss passport, because she and my father got married one year before the laws were changed, and thus, by marrying him, she was automatically given his citizenship. Also, it was, yeah, Appenzell was the last canton to give women the right to vote. And I say give, they were forced by the Swiss Supreme Court in 1990, so that is 32 years ago. Also, interesting, Appenzell is where my great-grandmother's from. Yeah, until 1970, women made up no more than one-third of the workforce. Today, female participation in the labor market is up. It's still quite gender-based. So if you look at stats from 2016, electricians, which is one of the top jobs in Switzerland, 2% were women, 98% men. Technicians, again, 9% women, 91% men. IT specialists, 89% men. I mean, it's really bad. And then if you look at domestic staff, 92% women and 8% men, or medical and nursing assistants, 90% women and 10% men. So yeah, they've entered the workforce, but it's still very gendered. Yeah, they have a massive problem with equality in Switzerland. I think that until 2005, they didn't have maternity leave. I think that what you were mentioning before about Switzerland and because I guess like if we go into the history of Switzerland a little bit, you were talking about neutrality and then you were also talking about all of these stereotypes. In the lead up to recording this episode, this is one of the things that we talked about is Switzerland ran an incredible PR campaign after the Second World War to kind of clean up its image and to sort of really push all of these ideas that we nowadays have of what Switzerland is. The neutrality thing is also incredibly interesting. So in 1815, the Treaty of Paris was signed, and this is when, it, when Swiss neutrality was gained. And in order to understand why Switzerland was neutral, you have to kind of understand a bit of the history of Switzerland. So Switzerland celebrate the 1st of August, 1291, as their founding day. And this is when the first cantons got together and decided that they were going to do their own thing. But actually, Switzerland did not exist in the current form we know it as until 1848. So Switzerland, as we know it vaguely, kind of in the form, hasn't been around that long. But before that, Switzerland was known for having mercenaries. So this is one of the reasons why neutrality was put into place, because the young men who worked in the Alps would go and fight, and you, they were mercenaries for hire. And they also worked as bodyguards, and different companies hired them 
for example, this is where the Swiss Guard comes from that guard the Pope. They're one of the last remains of this. They were hired as bodyguards. They gained a reputation as being very fearless and like bloody fighters. So in order to make sure that no one hired Swiss mercenaries, they imposed this neutrality upon Switzerland at the Treaty of Paris after Napoleon's defeat. And Switzerland just kind of rolled with it because it works in their favor. Yeah, so interesting that these Swiss mercenaries were supposed to be so bloodthirsty and things like that. And when we think of Switzerland, we think of peace and this pacifist vibe. But it's really not. Also, the geography of Switzerland has a lot to do with the neutrality because it's in the Alps and it's a territory that can't really be divided up. So it was because of its location, it was always this self-governing region. Even during the war, the Second World War, all of those nations that were really small, like the Netherlands, said that they were neutral because, obviously, they don't want to participate in the massive European war, but the Netherlands couldn't help it because they just happened to be in the war path. But because Switzerland, because of its location, didn't come into the war path, it was able to remain neutral. But the word neutral is a bit misleading because they were the only people that accepted Nazi gold and gold from the concentration camps and swapped that for money so that the Nazis could fund their war I mean, it's not neutral when you deal... Well, I guess it's neutral, but it's not moral and it's not pacifist. And they did very well during the war because they were the middlemen for all the natural kind of resources and stuff like that. They did very well out of colonialism because they outfitted all of the ships, the slave ships. They were not a massive imperial power, so they didn't go and conquer places, but they went in after everyone else and totally exploited other lands and other people. So it's quite funny, we just think of Switzerland as this very cute little land, but it's brilliant, brilliant PR. And they're opportunists, yeah. So when America forced Japan to open its doors to trading, Switzerland saw an opportunity and slipped in there and was like, oh, we're going to do something too. There's a lot of, I think, misconceptions about the Swiss economy. The banking sector in Switzerland actually only makes up 10% of their income, which we tend to think of they, that's their main income, but it's actually quite a small part of it. One of the things that Switzerland does incredibly well is they're an incredibly rich economy, but they don't have any natural resources. This means, though, that they've had to source money from a variety of places. So you have a lot of countries that are very wealthy, but they're dependent on one specific thing for their wealth. Whereas Switzerland, you know, gains its money not just from banking, from the pharma industry, from textiles, from all these different things, but also from natural resources. But yeah, like you mentioned before, they don't actually have any natural resources, they just trade in it. This is because they have very, very low company taxes in some places. In fact, there is one canton, which was a farming town that someone came up with a brilliant idea to attract international companies to the canton and to tell them to set up their companies here. And so what Switzerland does, they're the middleman for these companies that just have like an address. Also, there's a lot around this myth of the bank accounts. I have to admit until very, very recently, maybe 10 years ago, I did not understand how you hid money in Switzerland. And until 2019, you could have an anonymous bank account in Switzerland. Yeah, 1.5 billion of European gold is in Switzerland, and 80% of that has not been taxed. And 2 trillion of untaxed money is in Switzerland. And this is all, everyone brings it to Switzerland, so it's in cash. So when we did the episode on the economy and talked about banks and phantom money that they create, because they're banking on money being generated in the future, 
that's not Switzerland. They literally have gold and actual physical cash. And they have these gold bunkers Mm -hmm. in the Alps where it's not accessible by car or by rail. Literally only a helicopter can land in the Alps and access these gold bunkers and they're secret. They are filled with gold and a lot of illegal money, obviously, like with Gaddafi and dictators all around the world, a lot of Russian money. It's all kind of in Switzerland. So they have all of this capital to play with to also facilitate buying and selling. Two trillion. That's a ridiculous amount of untaxed money sitting at their disposal. And that makes the Swiss actually the richest people on earth. The average Swiss person, their monthly income is 6,665 euros. Whereas if you compare it to Germany, it's 3,535 euros. This means the per capita in Switzerland is $227,000 in comparison with Germany, where it's only 35. That's a large difference in per capita. So they were able to start making tunnels and trains and bankrolling big projects and stuff because they had all this money and then wealth begets wealth. The other thing that begets wealth, according to Simon Anhalt, who was the first guy ever to use the phrase nation brands. In an article in the New York Times, he is quoted as saying, marketing is at the heart of what makes rich countries rich. And in Switzerland, it's absolutely true because they realize that in order to attract the pharmaceutical companies and everyone there, it's not just a question of low taxes, it's also a question of economic stability. You know, a lot of the reason why pharmaceutical companies or Rolex and everyone like that don't go to China is because it's maybe unstable. So Switzerland has this democratic stability, which is key to maintaining its wealth. And it also, in order to maintain this democracy, created this democratic process where everyone could be involved. But in order for everyone to be involved, they then had to make sure that everyone had free education and education for all. So they were one of the first countries who implemented that because it impacted the stability of the country. They also have this interesting thing where they have an executive council with seven members on it. So this means that unlike other countries where you can have a person, say, Donald Trump, who sort of sets the tone in the country, you don't have one person with such power who dramatically steer them in one direction versus the other. You have seven people who have to make the calls. And so this, again, contributes to that stability. We were saying earlier about the Nazi gold. We were watching this documentary together about why Switzerland is so rich. And the guy was saying that, yeah, part of gold taken from concentration camps. And he says something along the lines of, everyone thinks it was such a large amount, but actually it wasn't that much. And I had this moment of like, but it's not about the actual number. It's about the fact that you did that. Even if it was only 1.1% of the gold that came into the country, you took gold from concentration camps. That's Mm. like, there's no words for what that is. But then once the war was over, this goes back to the PR thing, Switzerland realized that they had to, I don't want to say cover up, but they had to clean up their image. So they donated a bunch of money to solidarity efforts. They ran a PR campaign to push this idea of, but we're a cute little country and we've got our cows and we've got our chocolate. So they're a smart little country. They also, on the subject of immigration, which was fascinating to me, in the 1970s, they just 
got rid of 200,000 guest workers because they were too poor to live in Switzerland. They, they just exported them, basically. They bought them tickets elsewhere. They yeah. said, if, if we buy you a ticket somewhere else, will you leave us? They or... exported their poor people first in 1850 to the USA and South America and just yeah bought them tickets to just go away because they were poor. And then there was a mass immigration when the Huguenots came in in 1818. And that was a really cheap foreign labor and it really helped their textile industry and stuff. So that was good for them. And then, like I said, they had a bunch of guest workers, any guest workers who couldn't afford to stay there. They just exported them. Recently, actually, two months ago, there was an article in The Guardian about how the Swiss had a secret deal with the Chinese where the Chinese could come in, Chinese basically spies, and they could come in and they could interview and take back any people that they wanted, that the Swiss wanted to deport, which campaign groups have said that Switzerland is probably violating non-refoulement principles, which ban the return of refugees to places where they may be at risk. And given China's track record, if those people are being flown into Switzerland to talk to people. It's not just a case of any immigrant. It's really a case of people that they are interested in politically and will probably be very ill-treated, tortured in China when they go back. So it's the same kind of same kind of stories repeating themselves, but it's interesting what gets pushed underground and then what the image of Switzerland is. And it's not that image. No, they really lean into their cliches. I was getting my passport renewed and I was in the consulate in Munich and they had this poster hanging and it was a tourist poster for Switzerland and it had this picturesque Alpine landscape with a chalet and a Swiss flag. And then there was a little man on a ladder ironing the Swiss flag. So like they embrace it because they know that if they keep the world thinking, oh, we're this cute little country of precision and accuracy and we're punctual then we won't suspect them of doing anything in any way bad or evil because the neutrality thing completely plays into their hands. Because neutrality, like I mentioned, neutrality doesn't mean moral and it doesn't mean ethical. It just means that you're not taking anyone's side. But surely at some point, there is a point when you need to take a side. You need to pick. Because as a country that stood by and watched the Holocaust happen, you can't stand and watch an atrocity like that happen. What does neutrality mean when it causes other people to suffer? Going back to this nation branding thing, because the guy who first used this term, Anholt, who I talked about before, he's now switched and he complains about this neoliberal marketization of everything and its consequences. And that countries have to perform as if they were nothing more than just products in the marketplace. So on a similar note, Naomi Klein wrote in 2002 about this concept and said that diversity and debate are the lifeblood of liberty and they are the enemies of branding. Unlike strong bands, which are predictable and disciplined, democracy is messy and fractitious if not outright rebellious. The task of gussing up a nation brand is not only futile, but dangerous. I think what Anhalt is saying is, well, actually, it goes down to like good governance in the end and sort of authenticity. I think we're seeing this in brands in general, though. You know, people, because he helped Mexico, he said Mexico was like suffering a confidence problem. It just needed to speak out more on stuff. And I wonder if Switzerland has seen that and because the Swiss are so smart are now going to change a little bit towards the general consensus. Like they did get rid of in 2019, you know, the fact that you could just open up a bank account and put any money there. There are now proper checks in Switzerland. 
Obviously, the Birkenbahn is, I think, not good for their image. But we see this like really interesting struggle, I feel, between pure nation brand like you have with Brexit, right? So we are the royal family and Victorianism and imperialism. And then the struggle, on the other hand, to just be like, oh, no, it's messy and let's just have proper conversations and debate and not try and get back to it. I think there's this kind of struggle happening with countries and mm. their identities. And you can see it like with brands, you can see all these like old brands and this stable way of being or this craving for stability mm. versus a craving for messiness and authenticity. I think there's something to that because I think we're also kind of seeing something similar in Germany, no? Germans are known for being incredibly efficient and hardworking. But if you've paid attention during Corona, you'll notice that we're not incredibly efficient. This entire vaccination process is so messed up. If you've ever taken the Deutsche Bahn, you will know that they are the most unorganized, inefficient. The Germans have never been efficient. This is a complete myth. As we mentioned in our episode about Hanno, about the Nazi era and what does it mean to have generational wealth that was acquired during the Nazi era and how do we deal with that but yet we sort of build up this reputation for being the country that dealt with its history the best when in reality we didn't but yeah this idea of national identity maybe we're all just having an identity crisis every country but also every single nation is only a nation because of myth right it's a story otherwise there is absolutely no difference between the germans and the french we're next to each other of course like even if you look at north germany versus south germany the countries are so incredibly different i'm from the south of germany where i feel like we have more in common culturally with austria and switzerland than i do with someone living in berlin and yet we're one country versus another like of course you know borders are made up like switzerland sticks to its national identity in such a bizarre and weird way so i don't know if you guys saw recently there's a woman from the netherlands who had been living in switzerland since she was eight and she was rejected from becoming a swiss citizen because the people of her village deemed her too annoying and she like campaigned for animal rights specifically she said that the bells that the cows wore were not good for the cows and so she like attacked swiss identity right because like cowbells that's also kind of a cliche but so she attacked something that is considered very authentically swiss and so they were like no they rejected her her citizenship request yeah and this idea of like who belongs to a nation who can be excluded from a nation and is excluded from society and i feel we'll see this with the burka band the swiss are the people who are saying that they should be excluded. But the argument is quite funny because they're saying, well, they are excluding themselves by dressing differently. The SVP is pushing this agenda as a form of fear-mongering and scapegoating. Yeah, they, they were also responsible for the ad in Switzerland quite a few years ago, which was very famous because it's just so racist. Like a white sheep kicking a black sheep out of the country and saying... Kriminelle Ausländer abschaffen. Yes, foreigners who are criminals should be picked out, basically. There's a weird unifying element to hate, isn't there? Because Switzerland in and itself is kind of a confusing country in the sense of they speak four different languages. People often forget about Romanish, but they do. And the French part and the German part and the Italian part, they're all so different and yet they're one country. So if they're all so different... It's a country full of contradictions in the sense of they don't have one cultural basis and yet they're going to pick on one specific minority because this can unify them in some weird way. And it's very funny that the whole country is voting on this because 
Muslims make up, I think, 5% of the population in Switzerland. And of that 5%, the people who are wearing burqas, it's probably 0.5 maximum. Like, it's not many people. But it's, yeah, like you say, it's totally about something else entirely. It's about nation myth-making. They don't give a shit about women. And misogyny and racism. On that note. Here are our three things you can do this week to be a better person. Thing one, take a leaf out of Switzerland's book when it comes to economics. Diversify your income and be resourceful even if you have no resources. Thing two, interrogate what you think the identity of your country is and think about what myths and stories you were told and what you believe and why. Because there's a good chance that that stable picture is actually not so simple and it's very complex. And thing three, don't discriminate when you see a woman in a burqa. And when it comes to voting on laws like this, take a step back and listen to the people who it actually affects and their opinion and see how you can help them. Thank you for listening. Until next week, goodbye. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and share it with your friends. And if you like, you can share your internet obsessions with us. Tweet us at the underscore miss underscore informed or follow us on Instagram at the underscore miss underscore informed. You can also send us an email at misinformed.podcast at gmail.com. You can also listen and subscribe via YouTube. For news about the show or upcoming events and links to all our sources, references and other geeky inspiration, subscribe to our newsletter. You can find the link via our Instagram. We are an independent, non-profit podcast. If you would like to show us some love, you can make a one-off donation via our SoundCloud or support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash misinformed. Thank you for listening. Until next time, goodbye.